This is C-SPAN's The Weekly for January 11th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. The Senate debate is now underway on President Trump's nominee to replace fired Attorney General Jeff Sessions. William Barr is before the Senate Judiciary Committee this month with a Senate floor debate to follow. What can we expect from the Democrats and Republicans? Just how contentious will it get? And who is William Barr? Questions we delve into with Paula Reed. She covers the Justice Department and the White House for CBS News. For Bill Barr, it isn't the first time before the committee or at the Justice Department. During the final year of the George H.W. Bush administration, he headed up the agency and now appears to have the votes to return. We begin with President Bush's announcement back in October of 1991. I have another message now that I want to reach the halls of Congress, and indeed I will see that it does reach the United States Senate very, very soon. That's an important message about a man that I respect enormously. And today I am announcing my choice for the Attorney General uh, to lead our Department of Justice. And I have chosen an individual who is a thorough professional, a defender of individual rights, and a person absolutely committed uh, to this fight against crime. And he's also been tested by fire, uh, working with several of you as evidence in the recent events at the Talladega prison. And I was proud of him then, and I am proud today to send Bill Barr's name to the Senate as the next Attorney General of the United States. That announcement from President George H.W. Bush, October of 1991, and William Barr went on to serve as the Attorney General during the last year of the Bush administration. Paula Reed, he will be back before the Senate Judiciary Committee for another confirmation hearing, his nomination by President Trump. What is he going to face? This will be a contentious hearing. Uh, Attorneys general confirmation hearings, they're always contentious because you deal with the biggest controversies, the most difficult issues. They all fall at your doorstep when you are the attorney general. But right now we are in this extraordinary time where you have uh, an investigation into the president, into his campaign, and these big questions that the special counsel is investigating. And a lot of the questions, uh, the most difficult questions, Uh, for Mr. Barr will be about public opinions that he has expressed about the special counsel investigation and whether or not he can be an impartial arbiter uh, overseeing that investigation. You cover the Justice Department. What's it like there now with an acting attorney general and, of course, Jeff Sessions out last year? What's the mood? What's What's the workplace environment like? In addition, we're also dealing with a shutdown, of course. So you have a lot of key positions that prior to the shutdown have not been filled, and many of the ones that need to be filled are filled with people who have not been confirmed, so they cannot actually do everything they want to do. Uh, They were able to recently confirm the head of the National Security Division. Uh, That was significant. But as you said, we have an acting attorney general. We have the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, on his his way out, and a new attorney general coming in. It's definitely a time of transition, but I will say uh, morale is low. I I think over the past several years, it's not just the Trump administration. It was also the tail end of the Obama administration. The Clinton email investigation and then the Russia probe have really politicized the Justice Department in a way that they had not experienced recently. It also brought sort of the questions about the Justice Department, the deputy attorney general. No one knows who that is, right? Um, in Into everyday Americans' homes in a very partisan way. So morale is, is not great because so many of these people spend their days doing the very important work um, either on food safety issues or antitrust or national security 
but so many people um, don't have a very favorable view of the work they do because of all the partisan rhetoric around these high-profile investigations. One of the questions I had with now former Attorney General Jeff Sessions, uh, he knew he was going to be fired. (laughs) Why didn't he resign? Why did he stay on the job until he was forced out? This is the greatest thing that ever happened to Attorney General Jeff Sessions, and he'd be the first person to tell you that. Because when you're Attorney General, you are able to unilaterally implement policies that he was never able to get any kind of consensus on in his time as a senator. And one of the things that Jeff Sessions was able to do very effectively during his time in that job was deliver on the president's campaign promise of strict immigration enforcement. Once he stepped aside of the Russia probe and everybody was focused on that, Jeff Sessions got to the Justice Department every single day, bright and early, ran on his treadmill, ate his oatmeal, and then he got to work on immigration. He staffed up immigration courts. Uh, He went after sanctuary cities in in court. He made it much more difficult uh, to seek asylum. Of course, he also was instrumental in the very controversial separation of families policy. And he told uh, U.S. attorney's offices around the country, immigration violations, this is a priority for us now. So he was able to do a lot of things that in his life as a senator he wanted to do, that he championed. But as attorney general, you have the power to actually do. And I think he wanted to stay in that job as long as possible because he enjoyed it. And he was able to do so much that for decades as a senator, he couldn't do by himself. You have been researching William Barr for your coverage at CBS News. What do you know about him? What can you tell us about the the attorney general nominee? Well, he certainly knows what he's getting into. Uh, In his early career, you know, he started out in the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department. And again, that has not been uh, as high profile a a, a department uh, as it has been recently, because one of the first things we always ask the White House when the president comes up with with something he wants to do is, have you run this through the Office of Legal Counsel? Can you do it? Um, But he started there. And in his writings uh, during his time there, we did get a sense of his jurisprudence and how he views the laws. He He takes a very robust defense of a lot of executive powers, but he is is a very bright legal mind. This is someone who understands the law. Um, He understands the Justice Department. He went from OLC to being the Deputy Attorney General, arguably one of the most important positions in the Justice Department. The Deputy Attorney General, prior to Rod Rosenstein, as I said, no one ever knew who he or, he, he or she was. Um, but here, uh, his, that role has taken on a higher profile. But the day-to-day operations are run by the Deputy Attorney General. And a former president, uh, George H.W. Bush, was so impressed by how he ran the day-to-day operations and the, the job that he did in the deputy position. It's one of the reasons he appointed him to be the Attorney General. So he definitely knows what he's getting into. He knows what the job's about. But I think a lot of people were surprised that he was selected, and the only thing they could find sort of quickly to to, to figure out why he was selected was this unsolicited memo that he sent back in June about the Mueller probe. He was in his early 40s when he became attorney general during the George H.W. Bush administration, and now in his late 60s. Let me ask you about the memo and the Mueller report. Tie these two together. Sure. So back in June, he sent this unsolicited memo to justice officials opining on uh, why he believed that one specific aspect of the special counsel investigation was 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 flawed. Specifically, he talked about obstruction of justice. We know the special counsel is looking into any conspiracy or collusion between the Trump campaign and Russia, but that has also expanded to look into whether the president or any of his associates tried to obstruct the investigation. And what Barr wrote in this memo is an argument that a lot of legal scholars have made. They argue that the president couldn't possibly obstruct justice by firing James Comey um, because that's within his right. That's within his authority as the president. Comey served at the pleasure of the president. 
president has the authority to fire him. And now a lot of people looked at this and said, well, clearly uh, President Trump wants someone who will do his bidding. But I don't think that's really fair. If you really, really read the arguments that Barr is making, it's a little more nuanced. He does say that if the president does anything to sort of pressure a witness in an investigation or destroy evidence, the president certainly can obstruct justice. And we know that the obstruction of justice probe is much more broad than just Comey. This extends to comments that the president made to the deputy FBI director, Andrew McCabe, certainly things he said publicly and privately to his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, and, and you know, certain aspects of, of what we were told about Mike Flynn and his job status. It's a much more broad inquiry. I don't think we can necessarily say because Barr was critical of Mueller, he can't possibly um, be an impartial overseer of the investigation. But that is certainly how Democrats are going to try to paint it. You are a lawyer, a graduate of Villanova. So when you listen to his answers before the Senate Judiciary Committee, what will you be looking for? Whether or not he tries to in any way suggest um, that the president is insulated um, from any sort of charges here. The big question here is if there is any evidence of criminal wrongdoing, can the president be indicted? This is an outstanding legal question. Now, there is a memo, there's guidance rather, inside the Justice Department that says a sitting president cannot be indicted. Rod Rosenstein said he would follow that. He was overseeing the Russia probe. He said if there's evidence of criminal wrongdoing, we don't believe the president can be indicted. And Rod Rosenstein's opinion mattered because Mueller answered to Rosenstein. So ultimately, if Barr inherits oversight of this investigation, Barr's opinion on that question will matter. I fully expect him to say that he agrees that a sitting president cannot be indicted. There'll be many issues that they'll ask him about. I certainly hope they ask him about gun violence, about opioids, but specifically that's something where his opinion really matters right now. And Rod Rosenstein, as you mentioned, is stepping down is that unusual or is that to be expected with a new attorney general? Well, it's certainly something to be expected. Uh, Barr, the first the first time around, he asked to be able to appoint his own deputy the first time he served as attorney general. And we're also told from sources that he negotiated with the White House as a contingency of accepting the nomination that he be able to select his own deputy. So it's not that unusual. Uh, the deputy attorney general, Rosenstein, he was able to get out ahead of the story yesterday. Uh, they came out with a narrative that he only ever saw this as a, as a two-year position. Perhaps that's true, but the two years just happened to coincide with uh, when Barr is expected to be confirmed. But uh, Ron Rosenstein, uh, he, he has, in the opinion of many people within the Justice Department, he has done a commendable job running the day-to-day -day operations of the Justice Department. He has done it. And again, this is not my opinion. It is the opinion of people I've talked to within the Justice Department. They also believe he has done a great job of overseeing the Mueller investigation while also balancing uh, the opinions of the White House on that investigation. So, you know, he has a couple of kids who are around college age. Maybe he'll go out to K Street and, and get a big money job. And he's just putting the word out now. But he has assured people that he will stay on even after Barr is confirmed uh, to ensure a smooth transition. But, you know, props to him for getting out ahead of the story yesterday. We're talking with Paula Reed, a justice correspondent for CBS News. The nation's capital is a small town. Uh, William Barr and Robert Mueller know each other. What has their relationship been like over the years? What that, do you know? That's right. I don't know too much, but I do know they have known each other for decades. Now, to those of us inside the Beltway, that doesn't come as much of a surprise. The two very high-profile justice officials that both served in Republican administrations would know each other. But in fact, their wives are even long-term friends. So it does add this sort of interesting dynamic because... Mueller answers to uh, the attorney general. If Barr is confirmed, he will answer to Barr. And Barr has the final say over whether Mueller's final report 
whether that becomes public. And if Barr does not believe that should become public and Mueller would like it to become public, we know we know Democrats in Congress would like it to be public, that could set off a very interesting confrontation. William Barr faced an easy, relatively easy confirmation hearing back in 1991. The chair of the committee at the time, Joe Biden, de- Democrat of Delaware, and William Barr, here's a portion of opening statements. First of all, it's a, uh, it's a pleasure to have a nominee before us in this administration that didn't graduate from Yale Law School. Uh, it's, the f- <laughs> it's the first one in a hundred, I think. I mean, not that there's anything wrong with Yale Law School, but we like to try other law schools occasionally, particularly uh, George Washington University. But uh, I'd like to invite you, uh, if you have a statement, General, to, uh, to make the statement, and then we'll go to questions. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. It's a distinct privilege to appear before this committee this afternoon, and I'd like to thank you for uh, moving so quickly on this nomination. I'm honored that the President has selected me for the position of Attorney General. It's not a position that I pursued. Uh, I never thought I would be named Attorney General or nominated to be Attorney General. In fact, I never thought I would serve as Deputy Attorney General. But the way circumstances have unfolded, I believe I am in a good position to provide leadership to the Department of Justice. That was from November of 1991. The chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Joe Biden, and Bill Barr. He went on, Paula Reed, to receive the unanimous confirmation of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and the voice vote in the Senate was also unanimous. My guess is it's going to be different this go-round. Absolutely. We do expect he will be confirmed, but Democrats are going to use this opportunity to really grill him again over that memo, but it's really a larger referendum on the president and on this administration and on these larger questions about the president's respect for the rule of law, um, how he has fired his FBI director. He has pretty much fired his attorney general. Um, They ousted the deputy uh, FBI director. Now, part of that was an an internal investigation. But the president has gone through a lot of justice officials, and I think Democrats are going to use this opportunity to really drill down on the president's relationship with his Justice Department and also draw more attention to the Russia investigation and these questions uh, about what happens when Mueller wraps up. Where does this go? Will we get the findings? Do you think that the president can be indicted? I I absolutely do not think this will be unanimous, Um, some for good reason, some for partisan sort of partisan bluster. Have you been keeping track of the revolving door and talking to senators about the number of confirmation hearings that they've had to undergo as the president replaces so many cabinet officials. I have not, but I have watched this within the Justice Department specifically, and it has been an issue with getting some of these really essential component heads confirmed. I mean, there are some jobs and some things that only a small number of people in the Justice Department have been able to do. And now not only do we have this high-profile confirmation hearing for the attorney general, He's going to want his own deputy. So that will be yet another high-profile confirmation hearing they'll have to go through for the Trump administration. And here's President Trump announcing his pick, William Barr, from December of last year. I want to confirm that Bill Barr, one of the most respected jurists in the country, highly respected lawyer, former attorney general under the Bush administration, um, a terrific man, a terrific person, a brilliant man. Uh, I did not know him for until recently when I went through the process of looking at people. And he was my first choice from day one, respected by Republicans and respected by Democrats. He will be nominated for the United States Attorney General 
and hopefully that process will go very quickly and I think it will go very quickly and I've seen very good things about him even over the last day or so when people thought that it might be Bill Barr. So Bill Barr will be nominated. And what is particularly interesting is that President Trump has not been close to former President Bush 41 or 43 and yet he selected somebody loyal to the Bush family and really more of the mainstream Republican Party in this town. Absolutely. In many ways, he represents the establishment that President Trump campaigned uh, on sort of tearing down. And if you look at Barr's resume, it goes all the way back to the Reagan administration and him advising um, Bush when he was running the CIA. And then, of course, his his rise in ranks through the, the Bush administration. It is surprising that he would select this person. Now, again, he the president said they, they don't know each other well. It's clear that someone advised the president, hey, this is likely to be our least difficult confirmation fight because this is going to be a fight. And no one can argue that William Barr is not supremely qualified for this position. He's done it before, um, in addition to other top justice official positions. So, yes, it, it is really surprising, though, because in many ways he represents everything the president is against. I asked you about what questions and answers you're going to be looking for. I'm also going to ask you about the senators you're keeping an eye on because the Senate Judiciary Committee has a new chair, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina, replacing Chuck Grassley, who's now over at Senate Finance Committee. Who will you be keeping an eye on? Well, let's see how he does running this committee, because a lot of people have sort of knocked uh, Senator Graham recently for trying to carry water for the president. He's a vocal supporter of the president, but I think a lot of people are going to be watching how, to the extent to which he tries to insulate Barr from some of this criticism uh, and, and, you know, the questions that he asks. There are some really legitimate questions about the Russia investigation, about about the public's right to have uh, access to this information. I'll be watching for that. I always enjoyed uh, Kamala Harris and Senator Sessions. <laughs> um, their interactions were always actually my favorite. So I'm going to see how William Barr does does with her. That's always my, my favorite. And of course, the timing of all of this, uh, because if the reporting is true, the Mueller report will be out presumably within the next four to five weeks. I have heard that. Now, some reasons I'm a little skeptical of that Why? is that because the special counsel continues to exist until every discrete case they've filed is wrapped up. It would be surprising to issue a full findings report uh, before they have charged everyone and those cases have reached their natural, their natural conclusion. We know they've reached out to Jerome Corsi and told him what they intend to charge him with. That case is now sort of being litigated and it hasn't quite resolved or no charges have been unsealed. We also know the grand jury continues to hear witnesses. They've heard many witnesses on Roger Stone. It is still possible he will be charged. Now, the Mike Flynn sentencing did not go as anyone here in Washington could have predicted, but the special counsel did think that that would have been wrapped up several weeks ago. But now it's been kicked at least until April. And we also have the outstanding case of Paul Manafort. He entered, of course, his plea deal. He allegedly violated it. Now there's new evidence. He's passing polling data off to a Russian associate. There's a lot going on with that case, and that won't be resolved until either February or March, depending on how the shutdown impacts his sentencing. It is possible that Mueller will still send out a findings report. There's another possibility that he may just have the grand jury issue a presentment or their report um, to make his findings public, and then he will do a final report on all of his cases. The fact is, we just don't know. And of course, Paula Reed, it is a report that uh, we all want to read. Will it be made public? That's a great question, and I think a lot of people don't realize that there's no requirement that it be made public. The only only requirement uh, under the rules is that the special counsel must submit it to 
whoever's overseeing him. Typically, that would be the attorney general. For a while, it's been the deputy attorney general. So presumably, he needs to pass this report off. Uh, if it comes out tomorrow, he needs to hand it off to acting attorney general Matthew Whitaker and deputy attorney general Rod Rosenstein. If it comes out after Barr's confirmation, Barr gets it. But somebody gets this report, and they have a big decision to make. If there's any evidence of criminal wrongdoing against the president, they need to decide whether or not to pass that off to Congress. It's it's not something that that is necessarily going to happen. That's their decision. They could just stick it in a drawer and never do anything with it. They could also just publish a link on justicedepartment.gov, right, usdoj.gov, so everyone can read the whole thing. They could also perhaps release a redacted version. Now, Democrats have vowed that this will be released, even if they have to subpoena special counsel Robert Mueller and have him read it line for line from the table. The president's lawyers, they've signaled that they're going to try to block portions of it. They also want their own rebuttal report. My thought is this will get out. The question is how. Did they just release it in the interest of transparency? If they do, I think it will likely be a redacted version. Um, is, is it uh, leaked somehow? How does it get out? That's the question I don't know. And based on your law background, what is the process of putting this report together? How many lawyers are involved? What's the research like? Uh, give us a sense of the process. So you have to remember there's so many different silos and discrete cases, some of which have been completely resolved. For example, George Papadopoulos, well, he's, he's challenged his, his plea deal. His case, for example, is one discrete one that, that's essentially taken care of. So his piece of the report, that's pretty much done. They've been working on this as they've been going. It's not something you sit down at the end and type, you know, in the beginning. Uh, you, you do it, it each piece as it goes by. But I think a lot of it already is public. If you read some of the filings from the special counsel, he's telling a story about what happened. And a lot of the information is public, specifically when he indicted uh, a lot of those Russian uh, Russians. They're never going to be extradited. They're never going to see it inside of a U.S. courtroom. So why is he telling us about the troll farms? Why is he explaining this meddling in such detail? Because he wants to tell the story to the American people about what happened. So I think a lot of the findings in the report are already out there. But there is this question about little facts that may not really warrant criminal charges, but help paint the larger picture of what happened between the Trump campaign and Russia. And we got one of those accidentally earlier this week because Paul Manafort's defense attorneys, who are actually very good attorneys, uh, there was a cut and paste error. And they inadvertently revealed that the special counsel has evidence that Manafort was passing off polling data to an associate uh, with known ties to Russian intelligence. That's exactly the kind of detail that I think would be in the final Mueller report, something we didn't know before, something that doesn't overtly support criminal charges, but helps helps sort of fill in some of the gaps here on what happened. If you had a chance to sit down with Robert Mueller and what a scoop that would be, (laughs) what would be your first question? Hmm, That's a great question. I may have to think about it for a second. We may have to ask it again because I may sit here for like a minute to think about it. My first question for the special counsel would be, how can we prevent this from happening again? Because, yes, this is about Trump. This is about you know, his, his family, his associates. But the bigger question is whether or not Russians really were able to meddle in a U.S. election, how they did it. How could a candidate sort of be so defensive uh, about it? Uh, how do we prevent this from happening in our next election? I think that would probably be my first question for him. Your other portfolio includes covering the White House, and the president, uh, as uh, he often does, refers to the mainstream media as fake news. Here's what he said on Thursday. Well, the news uh, incorrectly reported because I said, well, if we go back and everything's peachy-dory and you say we'll talk over 30 days, 
At the end of 30 days, are you going to give us great border security, which includes a wall or a steel barrier? She said, no. I didn't pound on tables. I didn't raise my voice. That was a lie. What you should do is give them Pinocchios, because if you ask Mike Pence and you ask Kevin McCarthy, you ask anybody in the room, they will say, because I know if I do that, you're going to report it. But you guys report it anyway because you're fake news. But let me just tell you something. I very calmly said, if you're not going to give us strong borders, bye-bye. And I left. I didn't rant. I didn't rave like you reported. I like, I mean, some of the newspapers, oh, and then Schumer always has a standard lie. He had a temper tantrum. I don't have temper tantrums. I really don't. But it plays to his narrative, but it's a lie. I very calmly walked out of the room. I didn't smash the table. I should have, but I didn't smash the table. And that's the story. So all of that, wait, all of that narrative is a lie. And Paula Reed, you were there on the South Lawn a very chilly morning on Thursday. And when the president made those remarks, your reaction? So this is the Faustian pact we have at the White House. We see President Trump more than his two predecessors combined. We see him almost every day. We get a chance to lob questions at him or one of his very close uh, proxies, one of his representatives. The problem is he lies when he comes out and when we talk to him. And this is what I wrestle with as a reporter. We have this access. He calls us fake. He calls us names. But he comes and answers our questions all the time. We have this incredible access to him. But how do you keep him uh, honest? And, uh, you know, I've had some interactions with him where you just have to say, sir, that is just not true. And that that is a challenge because he was out there. He, he, he said things that were not true. He said things that I don't think are true. And, and that's the great difficulty with the Trump administration is he, he does love the media even when he calls us names. He loves the access. He understands how to manipulate the medium. We just have to prevent him from manipulating it. And calls us the opposition party. Yes, I think we were in we were in some sort of conspiracy today. I, I lost track of who we were in a conspiracy with. I think it was I think it might we were in a conspiracy with the Democrats uh, when we were out there. But again, he did come over and he did take questions. And, and one thing I will say is he is setting a great precedent for the next administration. If they want to try to hide from us, we're going to go and be like, hey, President Trump used to come and talk to us almost every day, sometimes multiple times in a day. Get out here, too. This marks your ninth year at CBS, a graduate of William and Mary and Villanova Law School. Give us a sense of the trajectory of your career and how it all began. Sure. I started out as an intern at CBS News. I was a, a lawyer who wanted to be Jeffrey Tubin. I wanted to tell stories about the law. I wanted to be Jane Crawford or, or Jeffrey Tubin and write books and cover the, the, the law in 2008, 2009, after I clerked uh, for a year. A lot of my friends were losing their jobs. The economy was rough. And I said, you know, I've saved a few thousand dollars. What if I just give it a shot? And so I took the Bolt bus every day from Philly, where I lived, to New York City to intern uh, for CBS News. I worked for free for six months, and then I got a job as a fact checker for the CBS Evening News with Katie Couric. But I'd come in on the weekends, and I'd, I'd try to learn uh, how stories were put together. And eventually I got a job in the digital, journal digital journalism department, where you shoot, produce, write stories or elements for network, network stories. And whenever anybody didn't want my elements, I'd try to sew them together for my own little package for the website. And um, or if I was covering a story, for example, of the Fort Hood shooter uh, on the weekends, I would go in and shoot little stories for the website. And those actually caught the eye of uh, Susan Zerinsky, our soon to be president. And she was a big champion of mine. She actually helped me produce uh, some of those those stories. And eventually a job opened up here in Washington. It was an off air reporter job at the Justice Department. 
And they approached me. They said, would you be interested in this? And I said, well, what I have to hand off all of my reporting, right? This typical millennial pride of authorship. I'm sure they were like, oh, this kid. And they said, yes, you would have to hand off your reporting. This lady works three days a week. And I said, well, what if I do three days a week? I'll hand off my reporting. But the other two days, maybe I can do my own. And they were kind of like, yeah, sure. But thanks to CBSN, which is our digital platform, I was able to get to get on all the time, share my reporting. and went from CBSN to doing weekends to eventually, uh, thanks to David Rhodes, getting to share my own reporting instead of handing it off to other people. Once I got a little better in front of the camera, they let me on uh, some of our network broadcasts. And then they opened an investigation into Hillary's use of a private server. And uh, that was great because that whole story lived in the weeds, like really in the details in in terms of legal reporting and um, I dealt with that 24-7 for quite some time, and it really helped my career. And the Trump administration, as a legal reporter, I like to say, nobody's America has been made greater than mine. Because every day, we're asking legal questions that uh, no one has ever contemplated before, and, and that's what I do. And, and right now, people like Justice Department, White House, there's a lot of overlap, um, a lot of job security. And CBS has been really good to me, and I'm a, a full-blown correspondent. I believe I'm the first person who's ever gone from intern to correspondent. And you're now at the Justice Department, at the White House, and a change in the leadership at CBS News. Yes. Uh, yeah. Look, David Rhodes brought incredible changes to CBS News. I was there for about a year before he was. Um, and in he brought in CBSN. He changed CBS this morning. Uh, there was a big movement then to sort of bring us back to our roots in reporting and in real news and move away from, from what we had been when I first got there. And not only was David successful in doing that, he also sort of brought CBS into the 21st century in a lot of ways. There, there were, I think, a lot of challenges for him, and he was able, able to successfully launch a digital platform, CBSN. I can't tell you how many people I meet who are like, I recognize you from CBSN. And it's such a great platform when you're a reporter because unlike the, the network broadcasts that have this brutal arbiter of, you know, you have one minute and 30 seconds on CBSN, you, you can share much more of your reporting. You can go more in-depth. It's an amazing, amazing platform. I mean, David Rhodes also, uh, you know, he put Jane Polly on, on Sunday morning, which is perfect casting. And he's certainly had a lot of challenges. Um, but I, I would defend a lot of those challenges of having existed before David did. But Susan Zerinsky, uh, you absolutely talk about central casting. This is one of my favorite people in the world. She has been such a champion of mine and so many other people at CBS News. And it has been a challenging time, I will say, at CBS News and many other news organizations for a variety of reasons. But I have never seen such joy and optimism. Even the most curmudgeonly among us in the D.C. Bureau were sort of tearing up uh, when, she, when she spoke earlier this week to accept this position. And I could not be more excited. You know, I'm walking into CBS News every single day thinking, you know what, no matter what challenges we have, no matter what issues, no matter what names Donald Trump calls me today or whatever it is, she is the person who's going to defend us. And I really do think this is this is a page being turned at CBS News. And I'm literally so excited. One final personal question. With all of those platforms, you begin early in the morning on CBS This Morning, the CBS Evening News, CBSN. What's a typical day like? I uh, get up. Yesterday, I was awoken about 30 minutes early, around 4.30 a.m. instead of my usual 5 a.m. Um, by a call about the breaking news about Rod Rosenstein. And I thought, well... I really can't call my sources at 4.30 a.m., so I just went right into the bureau, got hair and makeup done, and started working the phones. I got that confirmed, rewrote a script, got to uh, the Justice Department, delivered it for CBS this morning, delivered it for CBSN, 
went inside the Justice Department, talked to more sources, um, worked at the Bureau for a little while on some other projects, had to prepare for this interview, um, and then wrote my script for Evening News. Um, a lot of the day, though, is based on source development. you got to touch base with people. Um, we're working on an hour-long special on something else. I had to tend to that. Had to write it, then I had to get back to the Justice Department, uh, do some more CBSN uh, throughout the day. I think I did an NPR interview at some point yesterday um, on on the news, or actually I think that was on Manafort because we have so much news just raining from the sky. Uh, and then I got home around 7.30 or 8. Uh, we're a little late to the game, but my husband and I are watching Stranger Things. We're a little late to the party, but we're enjoying it. And then went to bed at 9. Yeah, that's that's my typical that's my typical day. I just read this book called Sleep Smarter. Um, so I'm really trying to get to bed early because you, you need to be well rested to handle this administration. Paula Reed, Justice Correspondent, White House Reporter for CBS News. Thank you very much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app online at cspan.org or wherever you download your favorite podcast. We thank you for listening. <laughs> <laughs>